Good morning. Nice to see you this morning as we have our campus focus time together. You'll remember from last week, I hope, that we have been spending a little bit of time with the prophet Elijah and thinking about how we might approach systemic injustice. And last week we saw sort of the first principle, and that is that Elijah spoke, that Elijah went before Ahab and he spoke in the name of the Lord. And we talked last week about um, as Christians, when we see systemic injustice, that we need to be people who speak, that we need to be able to speak in the name of the Lord. We also talked about how Elijah was sort of a uh, no-name kind of person from Gilead, the wrong side of the Jordan, Um, and he came and he shows up in the court of the king. And he shows up rather abruptly, 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, this is his introduction, first time we hear of Elijah, says to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now this is the first that we hear of Elijah. It is not the first that we hear of Ahab. Ahab actually has quite a bit of an introduction. It's in the chapter before, if you want to look at 1 Kings 16, verse 29. We have much more uh, information about Ahab than we do about Elijah. 1 Kings 16, 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal that he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab was a bad dude with a worse wife who becomes infamous in chapters to follow, Jezebel. So Elijah enters a story that is already sort of spiritually hit rock bottom. Ahab was the most evil of all the kings. It's almost the implication is that you take all the evil of all the kings before, combine them, and Ahab's evil was worse. And it is to this that Elijah enters, this milieu of worship to Baal and Asherah, the fertility gods, temples and altars set up that if you want your crops to grow, if you want your livestock to flourish, and therefore your family and our country to flourish, then you need to go and and sacrifice to Baal and to Asherah. And this is coming from the, the king of Israel has set up these altars. And so we need to understand that when Elijah comes in and makes this declaration, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
we need to notice this. Elijah is not setting this up as a battle between him and Ahab. It's not some kind of personal vendetta. And he's not even setting it up as like, well, my social and religious policies versus yours, Ahab. He says, as a spokesperson of the living God, until I say so, there will be no rain. Now, who in Ahab's mind provides rain? Baal. Because Baal is the fertility god. Baal is the one that controls the weather. Baal is the one that controls their crops. So when Elijah comes and says, until I say so, there will be no rain, we're not to imagine Elijah trekking his way to the courts of Ahab with this little, you know, bag of ideas. Ooh, what mean thing am I going to do to Ahab? When he says there will be no rain, he's saying, Ahab, I'm going to set up for us an epic battle. My God versus yours. Let's do this. When he says there's going to be no rain, it's not a random threat. It is my God versus Baal. God's system versus your system. God's way versus your way. Let's do this thing. Now, we don't really know Ahab's response. We don't have it in in the text. But I can imagine Elijah, backwoods Elijah, other side of the Jordan Elijah, that he probably was not taken all that seriously. And if you think about it, how is he going to prove himself right there in the courts? The prophecy he predicted is long range, right? There's nothing he can do right there to prove his, the truthfulness of what he said. So I wonder if there was a little bit of like, oh, this guy's really entertaining. Let's let him move along. But we do know what happens next with Elijah. Look at verse 2 of chapter 17. And the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded, I'm sorry, you shall drink from the the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Now, we don't know the time frame between verses 1 and 2. We don't know when the word of the Lord came to him. In verse 2, it may have been immediate. He may have walked out of the court, and God said, you need to go. But if you think about it, he probably didn't need to go that quickly, because how long would it take before they realized that this rain wasn't going to happen? Was it days? Weeks? I mean, how long does it take for crops to start to fail and livestock to have to be taken further and further out to find grassland and people start to ration food? But at some point, Ahab goes, you, do you remember, do you remember that guy? Remember that guy wearing like the, the, the fur of animals? Do you remember that guy? He's talking to people in his courts, by the way, not himself. Do you remember that guy? Find him. Because I want to see him. Matter of fact, we know from the next chapter that Ahab did just that. That he sent out search parties looking for this guy, Elijah. And by that time, he had already been instructed by God to hide. So here we have Elijah by the brook Cherith. This is not a place conducive for human living. It is rocky, crags, 
cave dwelling. There is no way to sustain yourself on your own in, or in the crags around Cherith. Which God knew from the beginning, which is why he says, I'll have ravens come and drop off food for you. Now, I know that Elijah was an outdoorsman, but this could not have been an exciting prospect for him to be fed twice a day by ravens who you hope come and drop meat for you. And it's, I don't know, I don't know, I'm trying to imagine what that looks like to be eating that food. And then you're drinking from an ever-dwindling brook, and why is your brook dwindling? Because of your prophecy, right? You made the prophecy that the brook would dwindle. So it's a very sort of mixed kind of thing that would be happening. Does Elijah want the brook to dwindle? Well, yes, because that's the prophecy. But does he want the brook to dwindle? No, because that's his lifeline. What a strange place for him to be. Well, there's much we can learn. I could say more about that little section, but I want us to notice this, especially as we enter into a time at the table of the Lord's Supper. If you were to simply look at Elijah for the weeks, the days, the weeks, maybe months that he was at Cherith, if you would have observed him with no food resources, waiting for ravens to come by twice a day and drop food, and drinking water from a brook that's getting thinner and thinner, if you would have looked at that scene, you would have had no idea that he was a participant in this epic battle between good and evil. Likewise, were someone to look at you tutoring a student who has not, who does not have parents that are able to do so. Or if someone's looking at you as you care for a single mom who doesn't have the resources or the wisdom to know how to handle or care for her new child, or even if you're reading a book to learn more about poverty so that you can better address that need in our culture, if you're doing those things, somebody could look at you and say, oh, isn't that nice? But the reality is you are participating in an epic battle between good and evil. Someone might look at you and say, isn't that quaint? But you are participating in an epic battle between good and evil. Whenever we do those things, we push against, whenever we push against systemic evil, whenever we push against cultural norms that shouldn't be norms, whenever we speak truth in the name of God, we are engaging in the fight. So don't be deceived when you feel like the little struggle that you're feeling is of no worth. Because we've all felt those moments where we feel like we're in Cherith with ravens feeding us and a dwindling brook. But if you are participating in God's work on any level, you are in the fray. So don't diminish the work that you are doing. And so here this morning, we have bread and we have the cup. And the bread was not brought by ravens, although that would have been a cool effect if I could have figured out how to make that happen. But the bread and the cup remind us of this epic story that actually connects us even before Elijah. To all those who have stood for good and stood for justice and stood for righteousness in the face of evil. The bread represents the body of Christ who died to save all of humanity, who would believe. The cup symbolizes the blood that conquered sin, Satan, and death. It does not get more epic than that. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves. And every time we 
take a step towards justice or towards holiness or towards purity or towards reconciliation, though we may feel it, that feel like we're sitting in Cherith, we are actually pushing forward and moving forward the kingdom of God. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to do so with the same sense of, of humility and, and confession that we always do. But also let's remind ourselves that this connects us to something epic. Someone looking at us in the next few moments and looking at us go through this ceremony could say, oh, isn't that nice? But we realize by remembering the blood and remembering the body of Christ that we are remembering the victory that will come, that has already been earned because of Christ. What you do when you stand for the Lord matters. And today, we can remember that.